Good morning. So, um, before I say anything, I've got some things to say. Um, would you please make sure that your phone is in the silent off position? Do not disturb. And um, welcome to those of you who are here in person. Good to see you and those of you who are online. And as always, thanks to that crew that mans two cameras and all that electronic stuff back there, which is really too much for me to, to take in. Thanks for them for doing that. So um, let's be here. Let's begin in silence. And if it helps to close your eyes, you can do that. Just take a couple of really deep breaths and settle in. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be at our ends and at our departing. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Well, long time no see. I want to thank everyone who covered for me uh, during the time that I was gone. Uh, I keep getting um, from you and from people online uh, comments about what an outstanding job Dr. Hudley did last Sunday. Thank you for that. And especially am I grateful to Wayne Herbert for covering all of the communication things that had to take place while I was gone, the emails and so forth. So I thank you for that. As you know, we were, as you may not know, we were on a long-anticipated Rhine River cruise that went from Amsterdam and the Netherlands, meandered through parts of Germany and ended up in Switzerland. And it was a long-anticipated cruise because we had paid for and scheduled this cruise before COVID hit. And um, the river cruise people said when COVID hit, uh, if you will leave your money with us, we'll give you a lot more. But I said, I'm not sure you'll be in business. But we, they were and we did. It was, it was wonderful. It was Wonderful to be in a part of the world where all, mo most of our roots come from and to see people casually say about things, oh, this was built in 1215. It's new. So a lot about that. But you didn't come here to hear about the trip. Well, okay, a little bit. <laughs> Somebody asked me what one of the highlights of the trip was, and one of the highlights was being in Heidelberg and having a day-long tour in Heidelberg and lunch with the students at Heidelberg University. Education there is free. Just think about that. If you qualify to go to the university, your education is free. A young woman that sat at lunch with us was from Columbia, 
and she is studying electrical engineering and after qualifying to be admitted to Heidelberg, uh, they paid for education with one provision. She had to learn German in a year. And as somebody said, that's really, that's really motivation. Uh, we, we added uh, four days on to the end of our trip to go and be with uh, friends of ours who live in Bern. And uh, he was showing us around. This is your teacher at, um, oh, that's the wrong one. This is your teacher at about 6,500 feet in the Alps hiking. It was really beautiful. Um, I, my friend who lives in Bern, I've known since he was a graduate student and then it's for maybe 40 years. He was a graduate student at Rice and then a teaching fellow and then I watched him go all the way to being a tenured professor at Rice. And uh, he's originally from Switzerland, but he's lived in France mainly and in Italy and then the United States. And one day he told me he was moving back to Switzerland and I said, why? And he said, I need to be closer to natural beauty. And I said, I don't understand that. We have Loop 610, the Galleria, the ship channel. So on the last full day we were there, we spent the day in their home and most of it sitting on their uh, terrace. And this is the view that he has to endure every day. That is downtown Bern. You know, the whole country of Switzerland is not much bigger population-wise than the metroplex of Houston, about 8 million people. And in Bern, in contrast to, say, Basel and Geneva and some other places, they don't permit any modern buildings. There are no high-rises, there are no apartment buildings, there's nothing modern that's built like that. So the city has maintained its look that it's had for centuries. And um, it was just incredible to be there. I can't tell you what a relief it was to go a month without being exposed to the news. And I can't tell you what it's like to come back and be immersed in the madness that is our context. Another inevitable mass shooting in Maine. The terror that Hamas has delivered to Israel and what some are calling Israel's 9-11. The response of Israel with bombings in and off Gaza that is horrible beyond words. A white supremacist Christian fundamentalist who believes homosexuality should be punishable by law and the earth was created 6,000 years ago. A couple of heartbeats from being our president. Hate crimes increasing at unprecedented rates all over the country. So as part of my daily spiritual practice, um, I mentioned that to you, right? I practice a, a thing called Tonglen, T-O-N-G-L-E-N. Tonglen is a, actually a Tibetan word, it's a Buddhist word, and it means giving and receiving, to give and receive. It means, I guess the, the English translation for Tonglen would be reciprocity or reciprocal. Um, this practice comes from Buddhism, although it's also part of contemplative Christian practice. We would call it petitionary prayer. But Tonglen is um, where you deliberately practice empathy with specific individuals or, or groups of people in mind. 
Um, the Buddhist nun Pima Chodron, whom I've mentioned to you a number of times, writes and teaches about Tonglen practice extensively. Most of what I know about Tonglen I've learned from her, but uh, from other uh, Buddhist teachers as well. So the way uh, Pima Chodron teaches Tonglen is that you, you bring to mind the suffering in the world and you draw it into yourself on the in-breath. And then you expel into the world loving kindness and compassion on the out-breath. Uh, this is a basic teaching in what's called Vipassana Buddhist meditation. We send loving kindness and compassion to uh, our loved ones and to our friends and acquaintances and into a larger and larger and larger circle of people until we are sending it into the world. So as part of my own daily spiritual practice, I have a list of people and situations that I consciously bring to mind and... Um, I think all great spiritual teachers teach something like this. Jesus certainly did. That we want the world to be filled with love and compassion. We want people to be at ease, to experience wellness. So um, I'm, I'm up to is, uh, using the Lord's Prayer as kind of a stimulus for these talks. And we're up to the phrase, Thy will be done, thy kingdom come. So, um, the phrase that Eugene uh, Peterson uses, the way he translates it, is, may God put the world right. So, in my own daily spiritual practice, I have a list. You're on that list. Some of you by name. And then there are other things I put on the list. After the murder of George Floyd, I raised the issue of racial justice higher on the list. I certainly pray that there would be healing for the divisions and divisiveness in this country, that we might be healed of our national psychosis about guns, um, that cause an increasing number of us not to feel safe anywhere we go. I pray for the leadership of our country that there might be some modicum of intelligence, wisdom, integrity. I pray daily for the citizens of Ukraine who have been traumatized by Putin's invasion and for the citizens and combatants on both sides of that war that's gone on for over a year now. You know, it's easy for things to come on the news and then just go away. In March of this year, 60,000 people died in earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. They are on my list. Over 1,000 people were killed in earthquakes in Morocco in September. 11,000 drowned in flooding in Libya. And then there are the victims of gun violence. We have had something that qualifies as a mass shooting occur in the United States more days than there are days in the year this year. Our host in Switzerland asked, um, is it true that you have active shooter, drilling, active shooter drills in your public schools? Yep. It, and it's hard to get an accurate figure of the death toll in Israel and Gaza. Conservatively now, it's over 10,000, both Israelis and Palestinians. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth. So it is living in this context, in this world, as people of faith who seek to embody honesty, love, and freedom that this gathering is about. And I've called the talk today, How to Live and Love in This World. Now, I have a present for you. <clears throat> it is not chocolate I brought from Switzerland. Joshua and Tim are going to be handing out my gift for you. Um, it's a gift that originated while we were away. I think about you. I think about teaching here all the time. And um, I decided that um, looking back over the last number of months of my teaching, that I began a shift in my teaching back in the spring of this year. And that shift occurred because there's been a shift in me, in my own thinking and my own understanding about faith. And so that began to make its way in the teachings. So I begin to describe the work that we're doing in here as walking a path where we are carrying an evolving understanding of God or sacred mystery in one hand, an evolving understanding of an involvement with self in the other, and walking a path with these two things in our hand that is illuminated by our understanding of the life and teachings of Jesus and our understanding of the life and teachings of Jesus is also something that is evolving. Okay. And so I thought it might be helpful if I put together a listing of the talks that I thought were important from then until now. Not all of them, just the ones that I think are important. And after the talk where this new theme is introduced, there's one about the powerful shadow archetypes that keep us from walking the path as bravely and fully as we might. And I think that by your having a handy reference, being able to touch these things, have them available and how to find the fuller talks on the web, that I won't have to be repeating this stuff every Sunday. You can go back and read it. It's all on the website in both written, audible, and video format. Plus, if somebody ever says to you, what's Ordinary Life about, you can either hand them this, there will be extra copies at the back, or you can direct them to this. This will be on the website. It's not there yet, but it will be. And, and these talks also acknowledge the fact that um, if you get involved in the kind of thing that we're talking about in here, you're going to be part of, an, of a cognitive minority. There are not a lot of people in the culture, especially now, who embrace the kind of things that I am teaching. Of special importance is the very last talk that I gave before I left. In my, this is all in my opinion. Somebody else may have another opinion. Um, it's being one where uh, our culture, is where, as well as other cultures in the world, are being affected more and more with an awareness of what I call constructivism, contextualism, and pluralism. And these things, in my opinion, are very, very important to be aware of because they are what constitute the postmodern world. 
constructivism means that the world that we perceive is not given to us. It's constructed by us, right? So there is a major break there between people who believe in a revealed theology, that some God above hands down sacred writings to people and this is the way it is, rather than seeing that these sacred writings are things that our ancestors created over a long period of time. That's one of the ways of understanding what constructivism is all about. It's important to know about. We construct. We humans construct. Um, the way that Peter Berger helped me understand this was that when you want to know what a word means, you go to the dictionary and look it up, and there's the authority. And he said, you have to keep in mind that somebody wrote the dictionary. The authority lies in the person who wrote the dictionary, for the authority of your personal experience is sitting in your chair today. You are the authority on your own experience. Contextualism means that um, meaning is dependent on context. If we lived in Asia, if we lived in Africa, everything would have a different meaning because the context would be different. And even now, um, context means how we interpret certain words. The illustration I used was uh, the bark of a tree, the bark of a dog. Depends on the context about what you mean. And pluralism means that one context is not better than another. Now, if you want to understand the multitude of conflicts that are going on in our world or in our country, um, this is very helpful to understand why we're at odds because people don't embrace the truths that are inherent in these particular understandings. So we end up living in this very ironic time. And I know there's been some version of this since there's been civilization. But we live in this very ironic time when people in the name of their religion, which teaches compassion and love, are killing other people in the name of their religion because of their religion. And, and thanks to this technology, I mean, somebody says this has always been true, and it has. But thanks to technology, this killing is done on greater and greater and greater scale with greater, greater, greater consequences. And I have not seen this. I will not see this. But thanks to GoPro technology, you can now see this killing being done in live and lurid color on YouTube if you want to go look it up. The Hamas killings are posted by the people who did them, who did the, the so-called 9-11 strike in Israel. Those videos are, are posted on the internet if you want to go and see them. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Or as Eugene Peterson renders it, our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do what's best. <clears throat> Ready for a bit of heresy? Um, I lost my place. 
I don't think it's helpful. Um, to say this prayer. I think this prayer is a hindrance to a great number of people. It's an unhelpful teaching. Because um, God is not a larger-than-life male who lives in the sky. But we reinforce that every time we say it. Now, this is the way that those who constructed this prayer experience the world. But we no longer live in that world. And we no longer really use their language. Their worldview is not apt for us. You know, when some people encounter a reality that conflicts with their theology or their belief system, rather than shaping their theology and belief system to fit reality, they shape reality to fit their belief system. Right? There is not now, nor there has there ever been, a religion constructed by humans, and all religions are humanly constructed, where beliefs are as important as they are in Christianity. By the way, if you study the founders of religion, of all the great religions, including Jesus, um, you have to stop at 325 because then the there was a big shift. Uh, you won't find a great emphasis on beliefs. This has only occurred in the Christian religion, and that's only occurred after the first council that Constantine called, where he said, you guys got to get your act together and agree on what you believe. And then beliefs came to be very important. Up until that time, what marked the Christian movement was compassion, inclusion, and forgiveness. And so um, in their best forms, Islam emphasizes devotion. Judaism emphasizes intellectual rigor. Um, Buddhism has an earthy practicality about it, and Hinduism is marked by this rich, beautiful vocabulary. Not that one is better than the other, they're just different. And Christianity, at its best form, is marked by inclusion, compassion, and forgiveness. So we have this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. I type kingdom of God into my search engine on my computer. And I got 912 million responses in less than a second. And I'm going to read the first million. <laughs> well, it's filler. Here's the first one. Kingdom of God, also called kingdom of heaven in Christianity, the spiritual realm over which God reigns as king, or the fulfillment on earth of God's will. The phrase occurs frequently in the New Testament, primarily used by Jesus in the first three Gospels. Now, very early on in the Enlightenment, uh, scholars got on to the fact that the word kingdom is problematic. Um, when the Bible was first translated into English, the acceptable version was 
authorized by the King of England, King James. So that's why it's called the King James Version of the, the Bible. And he was a king, and there was a kingdom, and so kingdoms made sense to translate a particular Greek word into kingdom. That made sense. God was seen as a divine ruler who was like an earthly king, but he was he king over all the earth. So that was kind of a logical extension of the religious mentality of the time. And then scholars said, well, this is not exactly a helpful way to understand what Jesus meant. What Jesus really was about was um, about um, an empire, contrasting the empire of Rome, the empire of heaven or, or God. And then some got on to the fact that heaven was not useful because heaven is out off somewhere. And Jesus really didn't talk about heaven. So um, we give Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, credit for giving us the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God because Matthew was a Jew. Jews didn't like to say or write the word God. So instead of using the word God, he used the word heaven. That's how we got kingdom of heaven in that. And he gives if you read the New Testament, if you read the narrative of Jesus, you begin to get that clearly Jesus is talking about something that was not off in the future, not a, another place, but something that was present here and now, and paradoxically, both within us and we were within it. That's why that last talk that I offered in here about non-duality is so extremely important. We are in... And it is within, both at the same time. So most of Jesus' teaching is about the king, what we call the kingdom of God. Parable after parable begins with the kingdom of God is like, and then he tells a story. Now you likely know that the documents that we have in the New Testament were written in Greek. And you likely know that Jesus didn't speak Greek. Jesus spoke Aramaic. So that linguistic scholars have concluded that the Aramaic word that Jesus used that got translated into Greek as empire can more accurately be translated as community. So if it were possible to put aside decades of conditioning by church language and teachings, it's difficult to do, but it's not impossible. And, and simply read the Jesus narrative with a focus on coming up with one or two sentences of, of evaluation about what Jesus really taught about. You would say that Jesus taught about inclusion. Everybody's in. Those that the system, for one reason or another, said were out were in. Jesus pronounced as clean those that the system said were not clean or were sinners. And he pronounced as forgiven those who had broken all the laws and were therefore shunned on the community. Now, one of the things that we are learning that should lead us all to be citizens of the world, though we can claim 
to be grateful for nation, culture, religion, we can also know that there are other equally valid national, cultural, and religious loyalties possible. Real faith lives by gift, not grasp. Okay? Jesus excluded no one except those who thought they knew who should be excluded. Now, I want you to notice two things about people who claim to be Christian nationalists or people who say, if you want to know what I believe, just look at the Bible. Someone recently said that. I want you to notice two things about these people. First, they never mention Jesus or quote Jesus. Not once. Never. They never use Jesus as a reference to my policy, I base this on Jesus' teaching of. They never do that. And second, their focus is on who's out. Their focus is on teachings that are divisive. This man, whose name I always mispronounce, Daramuda Muraku, a renowned biblical scholar and teacher, says that the proper translation of the phrase kingdom of God is actually community of empowerment. Now we know, I mean we now know, thanks to advances in archaeology, linguistics, technology, and so forth, much, much more about the Jesus followers who gathered after his crucifixion and their experience of resurrection. There were no belief systems in the first three centuries. There were belonging systems because that's what the culture was about. And these belonging systems were all about forgiveness and joy and helpfulness, empowerment, encouragement. That's how the movement grew. Not because, hey, you got to believe this, but people on the outside saw what was happening to the people on the inside, and they said, I want some of that. Can I be part of your group? And they said, sure. Come on. This is how the movement grew. Not by having three, four basic things to believe. So they, they gathered in small groups, much smaller than this, in people's homes, to support one another. And they continued to put into practice what they had learned from Jesus. And they told stories. They were a joyful, enabling, forgiving group, and that's how they grew. Now, I'm going to come back next week and talk more specifically about being a community of empowerment because it's out of this understanding that I think we can enable ourselves to be able to live in this world which is becoming more divisive and more reactive. This is the context in, in, in which we live. So... What I want to do right now, though, uh, is talk about this community, and then I want to tell you a story. I, I began by mentioning one aspect of my daily spiritual practice, and um, I practice Tonglen every day, and no, it's not depressing. It's a helpful thing to do. Um, another aspect of practice that I do, I also got from Buddhism, and it's what's called the five remembrances. And I got these when I did a training called the 10 day, which was about 30 years ago this next month. Um, 
I don't know if you want to go do the 10 day, but if you want to go do the 10 day, it consists of 10 days of 17 and a half hours a day when you are awake and you meditate during that time with appropriate breaks for one meal and uh, go to the potty and that sort of thing. You sit in meditation 17 and a half hours a day, 10 days. It's so much fun. Somebody said right before I, I went, they said, I can imagine what Bill's last thing is before he goes into meditation. All, he will turn and say, hey, did you hear the one about? <laughs> so the end of every meditation period day ends with the five remembrances. I'm of the nature to grow old. I cannot escape growing old. I am the nature to have ill health. I cannot escape having ill health. I am of the nature to die. I cannot escape death. All that is near and dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There's no way to escape being separated from them. And I inherit the results of my acts of body, speech, and mind. My actions are my continuation. Now, one of the things that attracted me to Buddhism was that because at the time there was no one in the Christian tradition who was teaching any contemplative practice. Thomas uh, Merton and uh, Thomas Keating were not really on the scene in that time. And we didn't, we didn't have those resources that we now have in the, in the Christian tradition. There was no Jim Finley, no Richard Rohr, none of that. And the Buddhist people that I met were just so happy. They were smiling, and this is how they start their day. I'm in the nature to die. So I have a mixed message for you today. You ready? Non-dual message. It is my intention to teach ordinary life for as long as I am mentally and physically able, and as long, as far as I know, I see my doctor tomorrow, I'm in good health. So are we clear about that? And I'm going to die. And so are you, but. I love ordinary life. I love this teaching. I love doing this. Um, I think this is important, what we do here. This is important. I want it to continue. And when I die, that's not going to happen unless some of you step up to be willing to make this class yours. So let's not pretend that at some point Bill isn't going to go away. I'm going to grow old, get sick, and die. Now this, this gathering at Ordinary Life is a rare happening. I mean, people still will say to me who visited here for the first time, do they know what you teach? <laughs> yeah. 
But ordinary life offers an alternative way of thinking for people who want a, 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 to be part of that cognitive minority of faithful people who see another path. A way that is inclusive. And this can become its own empowering community. The things that are taught here about love, honesty, and freedom, they're not dependent on me. They're not dependent on my thinking. There's a huge body of teaching out there that's worthy of being studied. Great stuff that's available. There's even been amassed over the years that we've been creating a, an electronic archive of these teachings. There's a mass archive of material to be mined and explored and looked at again and taught in one way or another, a vast reservoir. And there are a lot of really competent teachers, as you saw last Sunday. But this class will not, cannot go forward without people who are willing to serve on positions of communication and programming and financing and community, those four areas. So, uh, as you know, we had a consultant in uh, to help with some restructuring, and that's in the process of going on. For years, we've been kind of loosey-goosey about this in ordinary life, and now it's the time to get more formal. So if you're interested, um, Wayne Herbert is sitting here at the front, and he will be happy to take your name and contact information. And just say, please don't say, oh, I'm willing to help. Uh, it has to be more specific than that, because there are specific tasks that need to be done. That's a commercial. Is that okay? I want to tell you a story. <clears throat> exactly 19 years ago this month, this woman and I were on a driving trip through Italy. I cannot, looking back now, believe that we did what we did. Because we flew to Madrid John Watson, who's sitting back there, plays a part in this because we had three reservations for one month. We had a reservation in uh, Monterosa, which is part of Cinque Terre, thanks to John. We stayed at the hotel that John and Kim recommended. This is part of Cinque Terre. It's a beautiful place. We hiked. We hiked up into the mountains. We hiked from one village to another. It was a really, really beautiful, beautiful place. We had a reservation there. We had a reservation in Florence after we spent some time in um, Monterosa. We drove to Florence and um, <clears throat> had a hotel there. We saw things in Florence. We saw David. Uh, there, I can remember in the museum where the Statue of David is, and he was much bigger than I anticipated. Oh, wow, big guy. There was a review posted on the wall by some uh, art critic from um, London who said, once you've seen this, go home. There's nothing else here to, to see. And he was, it was, it was pretty magnificent. A lot of religious stuff in, in Florence. So after we did that Florence, we didn't have any plans, except we knew that at some point before the month was over, we were going to end up in Venice 
turn our car in in Venice and take a water cab to into Venice and spend some time there. And then eventually we were going to meet Susie Ragsdale, some of you know from St. Paul, and get on a boat to take a tour of the Greek islands, Turkey and, and, and uh, Greece, because that was the only way we could get to Patmos, which is the isle where John wrote Revelation, which incidentally is the first lesson in the, in the service today, if you go to the worship service. And I wanted to go to Patmos and see that. So we have no plans. And we're driving out of Florence, and Sherry's driving, and I have a guidebook, I think it's The Lonely Planet, and uh, I say, looking at the map, we could go to Assisi. And Sherry says, okay, let's go to Assisi. We have no plans. So um, using in the guidebook, I started calling hotels on my flip phone. Remember flip phones? iPhones would not be invented for three years. So I'm sitting in a passenger seat. She's driving in Italy, and I'm calling hotels trying to get a place to stay in Assisi. And I get turned down and turned down and turned down. But um, one of the things that is true about me is that I'm really stubborn. And so I just kept calling until finally this woman said, I just had a cancellation, and I said, we'll take it. She said, we can't afford it. I said, I don't care. We took it. So we had... A room in a hotel inside the wall city of Assisi. I was so excited to be going to the place where Francis saw this cross. Not a good picture, but saw this cross. And it was here that St. Francis heard the voice of God say, rebuild my church. So we get to the wall city. You get to the gate of the city, and it's barricaded off. Police are there. What the heck is going on? So I get out of the car. I go to the policeman. I hold my guidebook up, and I say, I have a hotel reservation here. And he, eh, whatever, <laughs> moves the barricade and lets us in, and we go in and find a place to park, get our hotel. And the place is packed with all these Italians. It never occurred to me until days later what was going on. So it's still, we had scored big time. We were going to have a chance to, to explore the space, to hike. We hiked up, we hiked all over Assisi and the surrounding countryside, hiked way up on this hill. This is the Basilica of St. Francis. Actually, it's two um, churches built side by side. Every time we'd try to go to get into this place, it was so packed with people that we couldn't get in. And I would just curse the Italians and turn around and say, well, we'll come back later or some other time. But our time was running out, and uh, the next day was going to be our last full day in the Sissy, so we had done everything else there was to do. So I said, let's just go on and brave our way into the Basilica, which we did. And it was packed. I do not know how this happened, but somehow we found two places together almost at the front of the cathedral. We sat down just as high mass began, and then it hit me. This is All Saints Day. 
And they had a high mass on all, all saints. I don't know if you know what a high mass is. A high mass is where the priest and the congregation sing or chant the parts back and forth. But they did it over the top. They had an orchestra. They had a choir. They had soloists who were singing. Pomp, circumstance, incense, all that sort of stuff. It was just over the top. It was magnificent. Of course, I sit there wondering, looking at all this stuff. Now, what would Francis say about this? <laughs> but that didn't last long because I'm a sucker for this sort of thing. I love this. I love the liturgy. I love, I, I love every aspect about it. The music was just exquisite. It was beautiful. It was, it, it was one of the highlights of my life that I got to attend High Mass in the Basilica at St. Francis on All Saints Sunday. Uh, by the way, those of you who don't know, it's called a Mass because the end of the Mass begins with the word um, uh, Missa, which is a Latin word meaning it is sent, and the it is the church that's sent out into the world. It was great. You know the story of St. Francis. Have you ever seen a movie of Brother, Son, Sister Moon? You know how St. Francis, when he, uh, after he um, squandered his father's clothing business or made a mess of it, he uh, went and declared his vow of poverty before the bishop, and the way that he did that in the public square was by taking off all of his clothes? St. Francis is quite a guy. So today is All Saints Sunday. I think it may be my favorite day in the liturgical year. We pull out all the stops here, too, in the worship service, as we should. Now, we now know that after Jesus left his people, people like you and me continued together in small communities or groups. All we have today, all we know, about Jesus, about who he was, about what he said, about what he did, what he taught, is dependent on those small groups of people who gathered and kept his memory alive by telling stories and by encouraging each other in the faith. That's where it comes from. The way I like to put it is that Jesus didn't talk about the kingdom of God. He spoke from the kingdom of God, and he invited other people into it. And those who did were transformed by that experience, and they in turn transformed others. And those are the people that we honor on All Saints Day. Hadn't been for them, we wouldn't be here. I think deep down... People then and now want what Jesus taught. We want to live more peacefully with ourselves, with others. We don't want people to suffer so. We don't want our world destroyed by war or some other kind of carelessness. We want our children to have good values. We want to keep love alive in our marriages and families. We want to find a purpose for living that's more than our job or possessions or our social standings. So these people came together to create communities of empowerment. Not bigger 
than this gathering today. But what they did eventually led to this. Granted, there have been lots of ups and downs and detours, but for decades, men and women have persisted in embodying and hanging on to the teachings of Jesus in such a way that it makes this possible. And the possibility of this won't last unless we become as they were. That's my thought. So this afternoon at 4 o'clock, there's an Evensong service. And um, in that service, we will stand at some point, I think it's after the recitation of the creed, and we will say the names of all those of this community who have died since this time last year. It's always a very powerful thing for me to hear and to remember people that I used to sit next to in church or in front of or behind or tell jokes to or something are no longer here. They're gone. And it's sobering because I know that the day's coming when my name is going to be on that list. And so will yours. No matter how careful we are, that's going to be the fate. And my prayer is that we be as committed as were those who came before us to make sure, if we value it, if you value this, that that message of love, honesty, and freedom continue to those who will someday look back and number us among the saints. So practice tongling. Take the suffering in the world into yourself. Don't be unmindful of how this world aches. But don't do it by yourself. Do it in community. Because that's where the power is. Keep the five remembrances in front of you. No one is exceptional to them. I remember being with a dear friend of mine who died a couple of years ago, and um, we were, he, he's one of these guys who would not tolerate any talk that didn't come from the heart, except about the Rockets. <laughs> he's a Rockets fan. And one, uh, one year for her birthday, Sherry wanted to go see them, and we went to California where they lived, and shortly after we were there, we were walking on the beach. And uh, the women had gone off to talk about something, and Don and I were talking. He said, um, well, you're, you're here for Sherry's birthday. I said, yeah, it's what she wanted for her birthday, was to come see you guys. And he said, well, you have a birthday coming up for long, don't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, how old are you going to be? And I said, whatever it was. And he said, ah, so you're near the end, aren't you? <laughs> How's it feel? And we spent that whole weekend talking about that topic. I found myself at lunch one day frustrated with him for that. And I blurted out, Don, if I should die. <laughs> and fell on the floor laughing. Right? <clears throat> Right? 
I, I vary my spiritual practice from time to time, but for um, at least two or three years now, I've ended it with a prayer that um, comes out of this St. Francis experience. St. Francis didn't write this prayer, but uh, it's accredited to him, and you, you know it. You can make it part of yours, too. It's, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I might seek not so much to be consoled as to be consoling, not to be understood, but to understand. Not to be loved, but to be loving. Because it is in giving that we receive, it is in self-forgetting that we are found, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. This is the way that we live and love in this world. The conditions of the world don't determine our faith. Faith however, can condition the world. If that were not true, you wouldn't be here. If that were not true, this church wouldn't exist. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next week. Thank you. Thank you.